A Grumman seaplane falls out of the sky after taking off from the port of Miami. How did this catastrophe occur? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And, and today, we have a guest. Hi. This I'm is, Erica. <laughs> this is Erica. She's one of my coworkers, and we started talking about my podcast, as I am wont to do, and now she's here. So. Yeah. Yep, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. Learn about airplanes. Welcome she, back, She's friends. an avid listener of podcasts, and though she's not super into the, the, the subject matter, she has... Agreed to do this anyways for whatever reason. That's fine I'm a with little us. scared of airplanes, okay? So oh, I'm trying to learn as much as possible before I get on one next week. Yay! Woo! <laughs> Yay! Yay. <laughs> and my understanding is we're talking about a plane in a state you're going to. Yeah, that's what I've Ooh. been told. So I'm yep. a little you nervous. Going, <laughs> uh, you going to the Florida? I'm going to Florida. Okay, yeah. then. <laughs> Good thing is you won't be on this plane. No, you won't. Yeah, I guess no. that's the good news of it. <laughs> and in any case, it won't. You'll be fine. Trust yeah. us. You it, will. Everything it. will be great. We want to thank our patron, Kevin Shaw, for recommending this episode. Yeah. This is also one of the ones that we lost a while ago. Yeah. And then Kevin was like, hey, you should do this one. We're like, hey. I don't think he even said that so much. I think it was a P.S. Have you ever heard of this? And we're yeah. Like, Got it. Actually, we, yes. <laughs> we had originally recorded it before he suggested it, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Quite a bit it up, before. But then we brought it, he brought it up and we're like, hey, we already have notes for that one. We can do that one again anyways. <laughs> you know what's really funny is last week's episode and this week's episode were one right after the other when we lost them last time. Yeah. And now we're doing them again in order. Yeah. <laughs> this one's not as cursed as the last one, though. So what are we covering today, Nick? So today we are covering Chuck Ocean Airways Flight 101. This happened on December 19th of 2005, so eh, relatively recent. Not super recent, though. So this was a Grumman G73T turbine mallard with detail number November 2969, and it was built in 1947. It was built as in a standard mallard. It was piston, and it is closely related to the Grumman Goose, which is an amphibious airplane. Yes, this is one of the oldest airplanes we will talk about. It is from 1947. We're talking about a crash in 2005. The airplane was old. So why in the world are these goons flying an airplane in 2005 from... I know. That's that old. That doesn't so, make any sense. Because... So you think so. But there's actually quite a few airlines that do this with these older airplanes because they're highly versatile. These are amphibious airplanes, so in other words, they can land on water or land. And they really don't make airplanes like this anymore, especially in airliner form. So this allows them to be pretty versatile for routes. And when you're talking about, we're talking about a flight in Florida that goes over to the Bahamas, then you're talking about not very long flight that doesn't need a lot of seats, but they also don't want to try to operate out of the big international airports for no reason. This allows them to take off and land in the water instead. I don't know. That doesn't look very safe. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, I'm, the I'm airplanes. <laughs> I get it, but the planes actually had a really, really good history record. That's why they were still usable in 2005. Uh, that said, there's still <laughs> some out there. There's still some out there with some airlines today, mostly in Canada, Alaska, and all that. This airplane had 17 passenger seats and two crew seats, so it's nice and small. 
The captain for this flight was Michelle Marks. She was 37 years old. She had 2,820 hours total, of which 1,630 hours were on the Mallard. The first officer for the flight was Paul DeSantis, or DeSanctis. He was 34 years old. He had 1,420 hours total, of which 71 hours were on the Mallard. So he was pretty new to the Mallard. Both of them had a decent amount of hours. Chucks Ocean Airways was a very old airline at the time, and were known for flying historic airplanes and serving the Florida area since 1917. So they'd been around for a long time, as far as airlines go. This was to be a scheduled passenger flight from Miami Seaplane Basel. It was X-44 was the code for this airport, which is not a normal code. What does that mean? So every airport has a code. Okay. And that's how, say, when you're navigating, when the pilots are navigating to an airport, they put that code in rather than typing out the whole airport name. That just allows them to put in a code into the airport and it knows you want that airport. Oh. So, for example, DIA is K-DEN. K-D-E-N is the code. Um, Centennial Airport is K-A-P-A. For Arapahoe County. Okay. I don't know why I was making that more difficult in my head than in real life. No, it's totally okay. (laughs) So, yeah, so it was, they were operating in and out of X-44, which is a a seaplane base right on the beachfront in Miami. It's actually in the port of Miami, It is in the port of Miami. Got it. So, along with all those cruise ships, which we've taken off out of Port of Miami, the three of us. Yep. More than once. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, so this was from the Miami Seaplane Vessel Base X-44 over to Bimini. The crew originated at Fort Lauderdale that morning with the airplane, and they flew the airplane over to the seaplane base to X-44. So in other words, the airplane was on the ground at Fort Lauderdale International Airport, big airport, where the crew picked it up and then flew it the like 15 minutes over to the seaplane base. 16 passengers aboarded at Fort Lauderdale, while two VIP passengers boarded at X-44. So they made basically a specific stop there just for two passengers. They were the heir of the Bacardi Rum founding family on the way to buy a yacht in the Bahamas. Sounds like something a liquor executive would do. Yep. I wish I had that much money. Yeah, right? The airplane departed Fort Lauderdale at 1.05 p.m. Eastern Time and arrived at X-44 at 1.21. So... About 15 minutes later. The weather was good, and the flight was to be normal and smooth over to Bimini. The seaplane base meant that the airplane was to take off from the water. or This seaport was near the port of Miami in a very busy boating shipping lane. The seaplane takeoffs are notoriously very difficult because of the roughness of the water, as well as winds handling, and they're handling like a speedboat, essentially. So, and I, having done this, being it is really an interesting sensation. When you're taking off or landing on water... It's way more rough than taking off or landing on a concrete runway, for example. It's just bumpy. And you're really at the mercy of the waves, the wind, all those things. But it works. They make it work. It's like being in a really fast speedboat, and then all of a sudden it just smooths out. And they do this often? Oh, yeah. Very, very often. It's the only way they can actually make money doing this. Yes. Well, yeah. Taking... I mean, if you've ever been from Florida to the Bahamas, you know it's not a super long flight to get there. At all. It's probably similar from flying from Colorado to, like, California. Oh, if that. Yeah. So Some like of them Vegas. are really... Yeah. If that. It's it's Some not the... a very long flight, so the plane yeah. can do a lot of hops back and forth or even between islands in the Bahamas and that kind of thing, which small 
airlines like Chalk Ocean Airways tend to do because yes. that's how they make money. Yeah. And these pilots will land and take off on the water four, five, six times a day. And you asked if they did this often. This particular airline had actually flown this route between Miami and Bimini since February of 1919. So they had flown it for a very long time. They were quite well known in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. They were going on 90 years of that at that point. Goodness. The aircraft departed at 2.38 p.m. from X-44 without issue. The takeoff was smooth. As the airplane climbed away, everything seemed normal. But within a minute of takeoff, however, complete chaos ensued. The airplane suddenly shook violently. It careened out of control into the water just outside of the port of Miami, being witnessed by just about everybody in the area. Many witnesses saw the accident happen from the beach. On-duty lifeguards spotted the plane go down in the water, and they immediately rushed to help on a jet ski. They were the first to arrive at the crash site. They had difficulty spotting the wreckage at first, but then they started seeing things floating in the water, including a body. They rushed to the person, but they quickly realized that there was nothing that they could do from his injuries. The wreckage was located in 30 feet of water. The Coast Guard was deployed to help with search and rescue and recovery efforts, as well as the Miami Beach Police. The Coast Guard sent a helicopter that arrived within 20 minutes of the accident, so pretty quick. It was quickly determined that none of the 20 people on board survived the crash. There were 11 passengers that were citizens of the Bahamas, and 7 passengers and 2 crew were U.S. citizens. Of the passengers on board, 3 were lap infants. That's just sad. I That's hate terrible. when lap I hate infants that. involved. Yep. So someone actually caught this crash on a cell phone camera, which were primitive at best. Yeah, in 2005, yeah. So this is not the best of footage, but here it is. Okay, so what's that fireball? Exactly. Behind yeah, it? We'll, we'll talk about it in a second. We'll get okay. into that. Because yeah. that looks a little ridiculous. Yeah, this was within a minute of takeoff. So this was almost immediately after. Okay. A witness on the beach used a cell phone to record the video. There it is, okay of the airplane as it was slammed into the water. This video circulated widely on the news and was quickly one of the most important pieces of initial evidence for investigators as the video showed the fuselage with the left wing impacting the water followed by the flaming right wing separately. Oh, okay. So the thing that was behind the plane that you saw, that's the right wing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I'm, like, thinking about it in my head again, that still is uncomfortable. Like, oh, yes. how did that happen? Where did the wing go? Not okay with me. Yep. We'll get into that in just a second. <laughs> Divers were able to recover the plane's one black box, the cockpit voice recorder. The plane was not equipped with a flight data recorder and was not required to be. Please refer to the previous episode as to why. However... After recovering the CVR recording, they found that the CVR had a mechanical failure entirely separate from the accident, where it wasn't erasing data from the tape as it should be. Oh, I forgot about this. So it was just continuously recording over what was already on it, making the recording a jumbled mess and indecipherable. It was just a bunch of voices and sounds that were just from many, many flights recorded over and over and over. Yeah, so much help that was. So they couldn't understand anything on the tape. And that's something that does not happen often. No. No. Okay. (laughs) For one, now they're not tapes anymore. They're digital. Okay. So that makes you feel a little bit better. Yes. Or it should. I mean, (laughs) to a point, at least somebody will know how I die if I go down a plane (laughs) crash. (laughs) God. Okay, moving on. 
Though the NTSB already knew from witness reports and video that the right wing had separated from the fuselage, this was confirmed when the right wing was salvaged separately from the fuselage, though it was mostly intact despite hitting the water. But it was on fire. Yes. And it was all in one piece. Yes. Okay. What could have caused this catastrophic failure, you might ask? I bet you can guess! <laughs> if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know there's only a matter of time before this comes up. So turbulence was not a factor, as it was a beautiful, clear day. Was there an explosion, you might ask? One of the passengers was a VIP. His name was Sergio Danguiacourt, and he was an executive of one of the most sold liquors in the U.S., Bacardi. He was actually the very last body to be recovered five days after the crash, and he was known to have strong political stances regarding the Castro regime in Cuba. Not a good look. There was a brief analysis to determine if an explosive is what brought this plane down, but the FBI found no residue indicating as such. In fact, investigators were already on the right path to find the cause of the accident before the body was ever found. While sifting through the wreckage, investigators found a section of the right wing skin that had a doubler plate on it. For those of you who have not listened to episode 7 about China Airlines Flight 611, first of all, you should. But more importantly, you might be wondering what a doubler plate is. A doubler plate is added to the skin of a plane where there is already a crack so that the load that the skin is intended to carry is then transferred to this plate instead, preventing the propagation of the crack, theoretically. Mm -hmm. This section of wing was sent to the NTSB headquarters in D.C. for analysis, where they found a lot there were three main areas that indicated fatigue cracking, which occurs when something is loaded cyclically over and over again and fails from that repeated loading. There are a couple of giveaways that cracking is due to fatigue and not overstress of that part. Again, we've covered this a lot. I'm still going over it. One of the primary ways you can tell is that the crack's edge is clean and straight and not rough and jagged. As a crack continues cracking over time, it does so generally in one direction, little bits at a time. When a catastrophic, not fatigue failure occurs in metal, it's jagged, and the angle of the tear edge is usually about 45 degrees due to sheer stress. Fatigue cracking was present in the skin under the doubler plate as well as on a Z-stringer. When a wing is put together, there are wing spars and stringers that make up most of the internal structural strength, along with the fuel tank and some ribbing, and then all of that is covered with an aluminum alloy skin. The spar is what ultimately holds the actual wing structure to the fuselage. In this picture, you can see the other giveaway of fatigue. It looks like rings of lighter color around the initiation point, kind of like tree rings or lines in the sand as the tide is going out and water gets lower. As such, these lines are known as beach marks and show failure over time. Do you see the rings? Yes, I see the rings. Okay. We talked about this in the comet crashes with Chris. Yes. These symptoms, as well as some on a microscopic level known as striations, can be used to forensically deduce how long the cracks have been there. Investigators determined that the fracture in the Z-stringer likely occurred first and had been there for years. It started at the slosh hole of the Z-stringer, a hole literally there for when the fuel sloshes, and the fatigue actually would have been normal given the stringer's service life expectations. This should have been repaired. Because of this crack, the Z-stringer could no longer adequately handle the load, so the load had to be held by something else, leading to the crack in the skin. So basically, the skin around the wing of the plane was holding the wing up instead of the internal structure. Okay, and you said that this was supposed to be repaired. Is this like 
something that they look for and then just decided, oh, sorry, I don't want to. I'll get into it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, just, it's not that they didn't. It's that the way they did it is not great. Yeah. Okay. For sure. <laughs> it was proven that maintenance at Chalk had known about this crack for some time as it had stop holes drilled into the crack in the skin. Because of the shape of the crack, it had a stress concentration at each end of the crack, which is how the crack continues to grow. So whenever you have a sharp edge, which we recently talked about in the comet episode, it concentrates all the stress to that point, making it a good place for failure to propagate. So to use Chris's example, if you have a piece of paper and you cut a slit in it and then tear it, it's going to tear a lot easier than an intact piece of paper. Right. So that's what was happening. The crack just kept propagating because the very ends of the crack were sharp. Is it bad that I'm really angry right now? No. Welcome to my life. (laughs) That's exactly how she feels. All the time. Yeah. And this is, you're not wrong to feel angry because. This uh, is negligence. And there were babies. Let me finish. Because it gets (laughs) worse. children. So a common practice in aviation is to drill a hole at the end of the crack to reduce that stress concentration. A circle does not have a sharp edge. Okay. So, theoretically, that stops the crack from propagating. However, so there were three of these holes drilled into the skin, 7, 9, and 16 inches forward of the trailing edge of the wing, a.k.a. the back of the wing. So from the back, you go back 7 inches, there was one, 9 inches, there's another, and 16 inches, there's another. This crack was determined to be 16 inches long at the time of the accident. Which means you can clearly see it from the outside of the plane. However, the doublers were probably added after the third stop drill hole when it was determined that stop drilling was no longer effective. But it's hard to tell as the doubler repair was never documented and the maintenance supervisor had no memory of performing the doubler repair. I forgot about that, okay. too. <laughs> so if you know anything about aviation, documentation is key. You document everything. If you put your hands on an airplane and you do some kind of maintenance to it, you write it down. Um, Yeah, so that this doesn't happen. Also, yeah. just to cover your butt. So it's if also, something like this happens, you're yes. like, but look, I made all these correct steps, but yes. they didn't have any of that. And here's the thing. If you don't, it's also a federal offense. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, if you don't write fun. it down, if you don't write it down, it is federally illegal. Good. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to continue the horribleness of maintenance, in places where bits of skin were missing, it was filled in with a green sealant that later maintenance teams put fasteners through the, instead of the skin, making load transfer impossible. Does that make sense? So the yep. entire reason they would put the doubler plate on it, it made it completely impossible for the double plate to do its job. So they put fix a flat in the wing. Yeah. Basically. And then <laughs> just said, okay, here you go. Here's an extra one, but extra piece, but it's not going to work because of the fix the fix a flat. Mm-hmm. At this point, the fatigue appeared in the rear spar, lower spar cap with these beach marks. This fatigue started at a double drilled hole which is indicative of more poor maintenance techniques, because you're not supposed to ever double drill a hole. Though there was evidence of fatigue elsewhere in the part, meaning that the stress was so high that fatigue occurred in multiple places in a relatively short amount of time. As happens with fatigue, it's hard to tell once a crack starts when exactly it will give. 
Although a crack can be relatively small, once it reaches a critical crack length, the whole thing will fail. Now, why was the original crack in the Z-stringer never found? Well, one of the signs that there was a problem was this plane had chronic fuel leaks. The manufacturer of the plane actually sent out a service bulletin decades earlier saying that this was a sign of structural failure. Maintenance tried to repair the stringer by grinding the crack down, and then applied a sealant inside of the tank to prevent future leaking, and they did so right over the stringer. This meant that the stringer could not be re-inspected for future cracking, which was present because it was found that they didn't grind enough. This investigation into fatigue started not long after the crash, and the NTSB issued a press release three days after the crash indicating they were looking into fatigue. In accordance, Chalk Airways grounded all of their mallards so the NTSB could investigate the remaining planes as well as the maintenance records. And what a mother load they oh, found. Yeah. Wait till you hear this one. So they they did the same thing to their other planes as they were doing to this one. That's on the actual accident plane. Or lack thereof. There were other repairs done that were insufficient. On the same wing, but not contributing to the crash, was a repair of the stringer in a different location with inappropriate riveting that was not in compliance with the engineering drawings for the repair. It had a fatigue crack. There was also corrosion. Now, this kind of does come into the territory of being a seaplane. Salt is a large contributor to corrosion. But this still should have been addressed by maintenance. The corrosion had made the aluminum pitted and thin, to the point that there were fatigue cracks in the left wing as well on the front spar, lower spar cap due to corrosion. There was no effort found to repair this crack. The NTSB specifically said that if the right wing hadn't failed first, the left wing wasn't far behind. That's great news. Now for the rest of the Mallard fleet. Nick, take it away. By the way, part of why this happens, and part of why this is so critical on this airplane in particular, is because when it's being operated on water, not on land, when it's being operated on water, it has pontoons on the wings to keep it stabilized that are actually retractable. So they drop so that the airplane basically can touch those pontoons on the wings. So you're talking about those surfaces hit the water, and then you're putting force that might be even more so than you'd get with just air on that wing. So, the FAA's oversight. The airline had operated for longer than almost any other operator in airline history, and they had a good reputation for being a unique and safe airline, up till the crash of 101. The airline had never had a major incident or loss of life in their history up to that point. A primary maintenance inspector was assigned to Chalk from the FAA as part of their operating certificate. This is normal. Any major airline in the United States has to have FAA inspectors on site. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, but essentially that's how you have that outside point of view. And the FAA inspector is also supposed to be checking to the federal standards and making sure that the airline is following those standards. They're on site with the airline. They're assigned to them, but they're required to be that third-party point of view. And this is part of their operating certificate as an airline. This primary maintenance inspector was also responsible for two other operators in the area, so two other airlines, as well as other maintenance facilities, vendors, airplane records, and aging aircraft inspection reviews and ramp inspections. So he was a busy guy, a really busy guy. His visits to Chuck were dependent on workload, and he attempted to be at the operator's monthly meetings. So he was hardly there checking. So you're talking about the federal inspector wasn't even around much. This primary maintenance inspector had stated that he was, quote, comfortable, end quote, 
with the maintenance practices at Chuck, yet the number of reports of cracking and corrosion on the airplanes at Chuck during maintenance was very high and depicted a very serious problem with the aging aircraft. Also, the fixes weren't being properly monitored or performed, leading to the catastrophic failure of the wing of the Mallard. Yeah, slightly suspicious there. Yeah. Oh, everything's fine. Then why are all these issues happening on these planes? Exactly. The primary maintenance inspector felt the airline met all of the federal aviation regulation requirements. While this was mostly true, it was found that this was not enough diligence for the maintenance practice for the, the age and type of these aircrafts that Chalk operated. The airplanes were actually exempt from aging aircraft requirements for transport-type aircraft because of their size, meaning that these procedures were not followed. So the airplanes were too small for them to care. Seriously? They're too small. Basically, yeah. they were exempt from the aging aircraft requirements for what would be normal airline operations. So normal airlines like United, Delta, American, all those, they all have to follow the aging aircraft regulations put forth by the federal government and by the FAA. So those requirements say after a certain age, the airplane has to have X amount more maintenance done regularly and checked regularly. And that would normally exist, and the more, the longer and longer that time is, the older and older, older that aircraft is, the more it needs. This airplane should have had a lot. It's from 1947. This airplane required constant attention, but it wasn't getting it. And it turns out it wasn't required to, because Which, it was exempt because it was too small. So if you don't have to spend the extra money to do the maintenance... Then they wouldn't. Why would you? Right. Because even though you know these planes are old... And you know they probably have issues, and we'll talk, I think we'll talk about this in a second, or we already have, but Chalk wasn't a very big company. Nope. They weren't making a lot of money, so spending more money on maintenance that you didn't have to do, they were like, well, the is not going to go boo-boo on us if I we don't that. do it, so... The issue was well known at Chalk by the pilots. So much so that some of the pilots had even left the airline due to the safety of the aircraft. One pilot with a family left the airline after having three engine failures in a year. Yikes. And they still just ignored... Yeah. Maintenance. Yep. Okay. Yeah. For sure. One of the aircraft had also suffered a snapped elevator cable. So the Which is terrifying. The elevator is what gives you your pitch, so up and down. That cable that controls that on the stick... Snapped. So the airplane was no longer controllable up and down. That said, but in all these cases, the crew managed to land the airplanes up until the crash of Flight 101. So even that snapped elevator cable, the pilot was lucky enough to land the airplane. And incredibly lucky to do so. Yes. Some of the pilots had even held a meeting with the company management several years earlier due to concerns with cracking and degraded rivets on the fleet aircraft. Some pilots voiced concern about how long some maintenance actions were deferred. So in other words, they kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. They just wouldn't do it. It was reported that when major issues were brought up to maintenance personnel, the issue would often be signed off as being repaired, yet no repairs were actually completed. Many of the airplanes had reported fuel leaks, particularly the accident aircraft that had been reported to maintenance several times over months. As I mentioned. And each time a type of fuel tank sealant was used to address the issue, but it should have been noticed as part of a bigger problem. The wing was separating from the fuselage. When this was noticed, 
there should have been a rigorous inspection of Chalk's entire fleet. So they should have stopped everything right then and there. Per the manufacturer, by the way. The manufacturer many decades earlier had said, hey, if there's a fuel leak in this spot, the wing is cracked. <laughs> it was there. The information was there. But they weren't following it. And pilots are bringing this up yeah. like, to their attention, and yep. they're just ignoring them. And they were saying, it's repaired because we put some glue on it. Oh, no, sir. No. <laughs> Not when you're talking about metal. This I just like that someone else is also as mad as I am. Yeah. Yeah, I'm cranky. <laughs> oh, when she gets cranky, she yells. <laughs> this led investigators down a rabbit hole to determine if there was a deeper problem with the airline itself. Obviously, there was. They decided to do an audit of the airline's financials. And they found many troubling signs of financial troubles. The airline had recently cut pay to most employees, including their pilots, which in aviation is a big no-no. The airline had a period of time when management changed frequently, and the airline went through a bankruptcy. But ultimately, it survived that bankruptcy. These signs of money problems, though, were believed to be a major contributing factor as to why the airline was deferring maintenance and poorly maintaining their fleet. So in other words... So the airline obviously went through a lot of management changes in a very short period of time, went through a bankruptcy, and they were still having some financial troubles. So they didn't want to pay for the maintenance. They didn't want to pay to fix the problems. They didn't want to pay to keep the airplanes on the ground to do the maintenance. They wanted to keep flying to try to keep making the money. And this was probably a driving factor in pushing maintenance to defer actions and then subsequently keep flying the airplanes. That's a big problem. Yeah, even though they were, you know, ridiculously dangerous and could possibly kill their pilots and the people on board, no big deal. Turns out that happened. I like how that doesn't even cross their minds. Like, you're already in financial trouble. Obviously, killing a bunch of people is going to put you even more deep into, you know, financial issues. Yes. Oh, yes. They must have known this was a problem. They had gotten very, very lucky that the planes had not had catastrophic failure before this happened in 2005. And I think they just got cocky. They're like, oh, our pilots are good. They'll figure it out. Well, fun fact, you can't fly without a wing. Yeah. And furthermore, I think they probably used their reputation as a bias. Because you're talking about an airline that is very old, flies these old but somewhat elegant and unique museum pieces, basically. And so they use that reputation of being this old airline and unique airline as, look, we fly the VIPs and we do this very unique thing. We have no problems. We've never had problems. Why would you look into it now? Well, because they crashed. Turns out. And people died. Breakity break? Breakity break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, everybody. So, findings. It is I who is covering this today. Yeah. So, the first one, I'm not even going to read because it's just that the captain and first officer were properly certified for the flight. It wasn't their fault, and they weren't the problem. Yeah. That's for sure. The second one is the airplane was properly certified and equipped other than the poor maintenance on the right wing. 
The fire damaged the fuselage and empennage was a result of the failure of the right wing and the subsequent breach in the wing fuel tank, which obviously. The accident was not survivable. The emergency response was timely, though. Good for them. Yeah. Oh, I would hope so, because they had a bunch of people watching it. Yeah. And they literally just hauled on jet skis. Yep. Yeah. There was no evidence from the performance or appearance of the airplane that would have provided warning to the flight crew of right wing's imminent failure, and there was nothing that the crew could have done to regain control of the airplane after the in-flight separation of the right wing. Because of the doubler plate, no one could see how big that crack was and the fact that it was getting worse. Which is very familiar to those who have listened to the China Airlines flight. They couldn't see most of the crack because it was under the doubler in that case, too. Yeah, so there was nothing that anyone could have done because no one could see how bad it was. The right wing separated from the accident airplane at wing station 34 because of, of a pre-existing fatigue fractures and cracks on the rear Z-stringer, lower skin, and rear spar, lower spar cap. And this multiple element fatigue damage reduced the residual strength capability of the wing structure and caused the fatigue failure of the wing during normal flight operations. The repetitive fuel leaks near the area where the accident plane's right wing separated from the fuselage were indicators of structural damage inside the right wing. No duh. When there's fuel coming out of the fuel tank, you have a problem there. Yep. Chalk Ocean Airways most likely performed the doubler repair to the accident airplane's lower skin at right wing station 34 and its repair should have been reflected in the company's maintenance records but it was not the doubler repair to the accident airplane's lower wing skin at the station 34 was ineffective because the doublers did not restore the load carrying capability of the skin in the area of the fuel sump drain and the repair did not properly address the underlying cause of the skin cracking, which was the cracked or fractured rear Z-stringer. So they didn't fix the problem. Yeah. They kind of just, it's like you said, they put fix a flat and it, expecting it to fix it, but that wasn't the it problem. It didn't work. When you start, I mean, it really bothers me when they just don't document stuff, too. I mean, that's, that's not a sign, that's not even... Just a sign of the financial troubles and the pressure to keep the airplanes flying. It's also just a sign of, like, their maintenance facility is horrible. They weren't yeah. doing anything properly. The establishment of repair thresholds in the maintenance programs would help ensure that repeated occurrences of a specific discrepancy were sufficiently evaluated. So someone should have caught this issue, but no one did because no one was actually watching them. And no one was keeping proper records. On the basis of the repetitive nature of the fuel leaks on the accident airplane and the structural damage that was found during the fuel leak inspection of another company airplane that led to the August 2005 replacement of that airplane's lower right wing skin and stringers, Chalk Ocean Airways should have performed a comprehensive inspection and maintenance on the wing structures of the airplanes in its fleet. So it should have fixed all the wings of all its airplanes. Yeah. They found this on almost all of them. Yeah. The failure of Chalk Ocean Airways to identify and properly repair fatigue cracks in the accident airplane's wing structure and the numerous maintenance-related found problems on the accident airplane and another company airplane demonstrate the company's maintenance program and practices were deficient, and these deficiencies were causal to the accident. 
No, really? Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, people just jumped out of the airplane. I mean, people do that for fun. Uh, True. I don't don't know why. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) The Chalks Ocean Airways Maintenance Program plan was inadequate to maintain the structural integrity of the aircraft fleet. So eventually these aircraft would have crapped out anyway. They were so old, they weren't being maintained properly. Eventually, they just would have given out anyway. Well, at what point, at what point do you determine that this airplane needs to be retired? Yeah. It was going on 60 years old. It, it's an it, old airplane. To be operating with an airline, most airlines only operate their airplanes till 30, 35 years old. Literally half the age. I don't even like was. that. 30, 35 years is fine. I don't like knowing that. Oh, that's... No. Maybe like 10 years, I'd be okay. A lot of... Now, currently, due to the coronavirus and all this stuff, a lot of airplane... A lot of airlines, excuse me, are retiring some of their old airplanes just because they need to. They can't keep up the maintenance. They're not efficient enough anyways for what they do anymore. So now, you're probably more likely to be on an airplane that's 20 years old or less than being on an airplane older than 20. And to be on something as old as 20 is pretty rare at the moment. The Federal Aviation Administration's, or the FAA, procedures for maintenance program oversight when applied to commercial operators of aircraft with limited manufacturer or engineering support, such as Chalk Ocean Airways, were insufficient to ensure the adequacy of such parameters structural airworthiness plans and, thus, the safety of such aircraft's operations and the FAA's failure to identify the inadequacy of the Chalk Ocean Airways maintenance program was causal to the accident. Updating Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA Order 8300, Airworthiness Inspector Handbook, with the latest Continuing Analysis and Surveillance System, or CAS, guidance and an explanation of this guidance would help FAA aviation safety inspectors ensure that CAS programs are being effectively implemented at 14 Code of Federal Aviation's Part 121 air carriers, which means basically all air carriers. All the the biggins. All the biggins. The Federal Aviation Administration received sufficient cues from a number of sources to alert it to the potential safety deficiencies at Chalk Ocean Airways, and these cues should have prompted heightened vigilance and additional surveillance of the operator. Yeah, the primary maintenance inspector should have been all over this. And wasn't. Yeah. It was his responsibility to be taken care of overseeing these problems at the airline. There was obviously an issue. It kept coming up. Why wasn't he noticing this? Because he wasn't. He was too busy, apparently. He just (sighs) said everything was fine. You know, just human lives at stake. No big deal. The Federal Aviation Administration missed an opportunity to rectify the Grumman Mallard airplane with a new type certificate that would likely have included a fatigue analysis of the airplane. Such a fatigue analysis likely would have included a determination of the safe operating life for the wing structure that would have been used as the basis for inspection and retirement requirements that could have prevented the accident. It should have been retired. It It should have been retired a long time ago. All of them should have. Quite frankly, what, at what point do you say this airplane belongs in a museum? Uh, apparently when a are. wing falls off and kills a bunch of people. Hopefully before that. You would think so. The probable cause, as it always is from the report, 
The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the in-flight failure and separation of the right wing during normal flight, which resulted from, one, the failure of the Chalk Ocean Airways Maintenance Program to identify and properly repair fatigue cracks in the right wing, and two, the failure of the Federal Aviation Administration to detect and correct deficiencies in the company's maintenance program. We got another pew, 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 pew with pew, the pew. FAA. Yeah, the NTSB is hitting hard at the FAA. An original radial engine mallard registration VHCQA, which was the picture that we saw yeah, that earlier, was the crashed into the Swan River in Perth, Western Australia on January 26th, 2017. So they still have these things going in 2017? Oh, I'm telling you, there's they still airlines sold that still them do. To- to another airline. This was being performed as a vintage plane during Australia Day celebrations. No. Yeah. It was yeah. not under commercial use. I don't care. There no. Are, there are still some in commercial use. No. No. Not in the United States, I don't think. Uh, maybe in Alaska. They're mostly know. Canadian. No. I don't I don't know. Chrissy's going to do the boop da boops Yeah. I'll come back to you in a second. Okay. So I'm going to start the recommendations. There's like five... Not very many. So the NTSB recommended that the FAA should verify that the maintenance programs of commercial aircraft operators include stringent criteria to address reoccurring or systematic discrepancies to include, if necessary, further analysis of the discrepancies through a comprehensive engineering evaluation. So making sure that they have proper programs in place for maintenance. Mm-hmm. They yeah. also recommended to the FAA to identify the systematic deficiencies in the maintenance program oversight procedures that led to this accident and modify these procedures to ensure that the maintenance program plans for commercial operators are adequate to ensure the continued airworthiness, both structural and otherwise, of the operator's fleet. So because this airplane was so small, it didn't have to comply with all the aging aircraft requirements set forth by other airlines, bigger airlines. Well, basically they told the FAA, doesn't matter, do it anyways. The FAA eventually changed the requirements and brought the aging aircraft maintenance program down to a smaller size of airplane. So these airplanes were included, as well as many others in this size of aircraft. That was key. That was critical because... That actually put these airplanes in a requirement for them to have a much higher level of oversight and maintenance that they weren't getting otherwise. They also recommended that the FAA include the continuing analysis and surveillance system guidance from Advisory Circular Continuing Airworthiness Maintenance Programs and AC developing and implementing a continuing analysis and surveillance system in Federal Aviation Administration Order 8300.10 Airworthiness Inspector's Handbook. So making sure that a surveillance system and guidance system is in place. That was required before this, but thanks to have the FAA continue to use it. Mm-hmm. They also asked that the FAA require records, reviews, aging airplane inspections, and supplemental inspections for all airplanes operated under 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 121. All U.S. 
registered airplanes operated under 14 CFR Part 129 and all airplanes used in scheduled operations under 14 CFR Part 135. This would include those airplanes operated under 14 CFR Part 135 that carry nine or fewer passengers and those that are operated in scheduled cargo service. So do you want to give us a little bit of a telling us what that actually means? Okay, this is a lot of really confusing terminology and numbers, but 121 are your typical airline operators. That is the federal uh, aviation regulations portion that they fall under is chapter or section 121 and 121 are like your big airliners united american delta southwest frontier all those those all fall under 121 they are scheduled airline operators 135 are charter operators so those are your charter operators where they don't have scheduled flights they only operate based on either when they're needed when they're chartered by you know, a group or a company. Charter operators can operate quote-unquote scheduled flights, but it's more like an as-needed basis. So they can say, hey, we fly from here to here if you need it. What about 129? 129 is even smaller than either one of those. So that one doesn't, that doesn't really apply. But it is important anyways, because in all three cases, they're talking about bigger airplanes than, say, a private airplane with a couple of seats. They're talking about anything that's operating passengers and is for hire. So they are talking about making this aging aircraft requirement to be implemented onto all airplanes operating for hire, essentially. If they are older than a certain point, they require to have maintenance. They brought that requirement down from a certain number of seats to... Across the board, all airplanes operating for hire. Now, we can also talk about the really important thing that happened after this, and that is what actually fixed all these problems. Chalk Airways went under in 2007. Woohoo! So they don't exist anymore. Yeah. Good. And they were one of the only airlines to have the Grumman Mallard. They were. Currently, only one airline that I can find does Mm -hmm. still have it. And I don't know if it's necessarily an air. Oh, it's a charter. And it's in Australia. Pearl Mm -hmm. Aviation is an Australian aviation company that has the Mallard still in its fleet as of January 2020. Now look up the Grumman Goose. That's very closely related. Chuck Ocean Airways at the time of the crash was actually rebranded as Chuck International Airlines almost immediately after the accident. And then they went under. Yeah, because so, they wanted to be separated from the accident would be my guess. Yeah. And so they rebranded. And then people were like, yeah, no. <laughs> and then they couldn't make money anymore. So they went under. Yep. And that's beginning and end of that story. They won't have that problem anymore. They retired all those airplanes. I can't figure out who still has this. The Grumman Goose. It was far more common than the Mallard. Oh, it's it's far more common, but that doesn't mean that I can find a succinct list of who still operates it. The list of the Mallard was so short that I could go into each link and say, they're no longer in operation, they're no longer in operation. Right. The list for the Goose is... um Longer? They usually have like a, yeah. a current operators list somewhere, but that's I, okay. Tr- it doesn't say current, it just says operators. I, know. I see that. Well, that might be because no one actually flies the Goose anymore. It, commercially. I, I don't know if that's true. It could be, but I'd be surprised. There's, There were so many of them. 
So this is where you, friends, come into play. If you know an airline anywhere that flies the German Goose, let us know. A total of 345 were built, with about 30 known to still be airworthy today. Although around 60 are still on various civil registries, many of them are known to have crashed or been otherwise destroyed. Oh, that's nice. Most being in private ownership, some of them operating in, a, in modified forms. Well, for the Mallard, like only 50 were ever built. Yeah. There was a so. lot more of these built. They were wartime airplanes. That's why. Well, that might be why they may not be operating commercially. Not as common, no. They might be they might be a charter, which it might be harder to find said charter, mm-hmm. or they're personally owned by somebody. Well, that was Chalk's Chuck. Ocean Airways Flight 101. Thanks, Erica, for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Okay, okay. good. I enjoyed it. <laughs> good. <laughs> Had a good time. Great. Thanks to everyone for listening, as always. Go check out the Patreon if you have not already done so. Check out our listener story submission page. Remember, October is spooky story season. Send us your spooky stories. Merch to come. Merch to come. That's a work in progress. And we'll catch you all next week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wear Wear a mask. Have a good week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.